Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please stand. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction, the welcome to Wayne and Catherine, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My uh, friends who were on the previous program, Madam President, General Clark, General Ralston, Shimon, Hood Barak. I uh, saw James Earl Jones. I think I see Bernard Lewis out there. I took all of his chastisement in good spirits. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, all the people who are responsible for bringing you together today. I think this is really an important forum, and I've been pleased to be part of it for the last couple of years. I, I would prefer today, um, because it's a leadership forum, there are a lot of young people here, to spend most of my time answering questions. But I would like to begin with a couple of thoughts. As was previously mentioned, I was with all my living counterparts at President Reagan's funeral service today. And when I got back to the House, Hillary and I got back home, we saw Prime Minister and Mrs. Blair briefly before we left, and I, but before I went over there to the British Embassy, which is right behind our house, I turned the TV on, and the commentator for one of the networks was saying, this was an amazing thing to see all these American presidents here, and they actually seem to be friends, and they fought each other for decades. And then they were commenting on uh, the fact that we had just dedicated the World War II Memorial in Washington, after which there was a scene apparently televised all over America where I made President, former President Bush laugh and he shoved me and I shoved him back and we were joking. And so I've had 100 people come to me saying, what were you and George Bush laughing about? And we were laughing about the fact that his son had just asked me if my autobiography was really 900 pages long. And I said that it was, and he said, you write it all. I said, I did. And he said, well, you know, I'm busy. We don't do 900-page books now. I'm busy. So dad and I are going to divide it up. He'll read the first part. I'll read the second. I said, he'll like the, his part a lot better than you'll like yours. I said. <laughs> so uh, then, uh, so former President Bush said, are you mean to me? I said, no, I practically built a shrine to you in the book, and, uh, except I use more graphic terms than that. And uh, I say that to make the following point. Um, because I heard Shimon up here talking about uh, peace in the Middle East. And Wes and Joe and I have been involved in the Balkans. And uh, I was thinking about the time when we bombed Osama bin Laden's training camp and tried to take him out. I don't know if Joe Rawson talked about this, but he had to go to Pakistan and meet with the leading uh, military authorities and say, oh, by the way, in about five minutes, the missiles are going over here, and it's not the Indians. Please don't bomb them. So we've all been through a lot together. I wanted to make just a couple of points. First of all, most of us grew up in fairly ordinary circumstances, and free societies gave us a chance to develop our abilities. We have the president of one of the Baltic countries here today who was also on this program. I'll never forget when I went to Latvia in 1994, and there were 40,000 people holding candles at night to thank the United States for having stood for freedom over 50 years. 
uh, a free society gave Ronald Reagan, a guy from a modest background in Dixon, Illinois, and Bill Clinton, a guy from a modest background, to put it mildly, in a little town in Arkansas, the chance to serve their country and the world. The whole premise of freedom is that talent and ability is evenly distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. And uh, I mentioned Professor Lewis because I saw him on C-SPAN the other night. You know, if you're unemployed, you've got time to watch C-SPAN, and I do. <laughs> and you were given a speech to one of those groups in Washington where you were giving the, you're basically the history of the, uh, of the Muslim world. And then I hear Shimon talking about the terror again, which we tried so hard to end. I do, there is no shortage of ability, of intelligence, of heart among the Palestinian people, among the Arabs peoples generally, among the Muslims in the world. As a matter of fact, I never met a poor Palestinian outside the Holy Land. Every Palestinian I know in America is a millionaire. Ecuador had a Palestinian president when I was there. The highest, the, the, the Palestinians in Chile control the flour trade. What's the point of all this? If you put people in a free society and you give them a chance to live by certain rules, and including certain restraints, everybody will have a chance. Look at all these young people here. They have different colored skins, men and women, different backgrounds, different religious faiths, different cultural traditions. Uh, I always thought the best thing about President Reagan, aside from his innate optimism, and we didn't agree on, we agreed on almost nothing politically, domestically. We did do the 1988 welfare reform bill together, and I was honored to represent the governors, and we worked hard on that. We reached agreement. But we reached agreement because we did it in good faith, and we reached across the divide in a free society. But I always thought the best thing about Reagan was that you can argue what caused the fall of the Soviet Union and the Communist Empire, and you can argue it flat around. We'll be arguing that for 50 years. But the one thing that Reagan thought was that freedom was a universal value and that there were no people who would willingly choose to be denied the chance to chart their own course in life. And that, I think, no matter how else history views uh, what he did, whether 30 or 40 years from now people still feel the same way we Americans feel on this day, no one can deny that. Time will not change those words or that truth. There were two astonishing things that happened while I was president that I had nothing to do with, so I can just disclaim this. One of these, you write the story of your life and you want to rewrite history and you realize there are just some things you simply can't find a way to take credit for. Um, <laughs> One was that in the long march of human liberty, in the 1990s, for the first time in history, more than half the people of the world lived under governments they voted in. And a lot of us who've been in politics, including my two friends from Israel and myself, we've been elected and beat. We know what that's like. That, that had never happened before in all human history. And that doesn't count the huge percentage of the world's population living in China. And in all the small villages in China, 900,000 plus of them, they actually have elections now too. The mayors are only appointed in the big cities. So you had 
more than half the people of the world living under democratic governments for the first time. The second thing that happened, interestingly enough, was the explosion of non-governmental organizations, citizens groups, from very wealthy ones like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the, the wealthiest non-governmental organization in the world, to poor ones like the Self-Employed Women's Association, SIWA, an Indian group that I have raised money and contributed money to that gives women a chance in poor Indian villages to set up their own businesses, to support their families better, to build all kinds of better lives for themselves. When I was president, we gave about two million loans a year, micro-enterprise loans in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, mostly to poor village women who used the money to prove that enterprise is not the province of any particular culture if people are given the chance. One day I was thinking about all these things my foundation's doing, trying to cut the price of AIDS drugs and deal with religious and racial reconciliation and start economic projects in India and Ghana and first one place and another. I was shaving one morning. I remember I looked in my mirror and I said, my God, I'm a non-governmental organization. <laughs> I say that to make this point. You do not have to be in government to make a difference. And in a global information society, you can have an enormous impact by organizing to achieve some objective. Shimon will remember this. The day after we signed the peace agreement in September of 93, I had 600 Arab and Jewish American business people in the White House to ask them to help Israel become a better partner to the Palestinians by investing money in the Palestinian territories to give people the immediate benefits of peace. A few did, and we would have had many more, but the enemies of peace would always have periodic terrorist incidents, which would provoke the predictable response in Israel, which would make investors reluctant to invest, so that by the time we finished, the Palestinians were younger and poorer than they were when we began. But nobody ever said this was supposed to be easy. My basic premise is this. For the first time in history, in 1945, the existence of the human community and what we have in common was recognized by an international law with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the creation of the United Nations. It was impossible for us to realize that vision because of the Cold War. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Since then, we have been preoccupied with all manner of religious, racial, tribal, and ethnic conflicts, with the rise of terror, with the terrifying prospect that terrorists could get a hold of chemical and biological and nuclear weapons. And particularly since September the 11th, 2001, we in America tended to see our modern world in dark tones through that prism. I would like to ask you to view it instead through the whole sweep of human history. All of human history, since the first person came out of a cave, since people organized from families to clans, is a story of humanity's movement from somewhere over 100,000 years ago when the first of our ancestors stood up on the African savanna from isolation to interdependence to community. 
At each step along the way, there was always a conflict between people who thought our differences were important, were more important, and people who thought our common humanity was more important. In the early 20th century, we nearly got it wrong. In two hideous world wars, in the Holocaust, in the Cultural Revolution in China, in the purges in the Soviet Union. But in the end, the people who favored recognizing the primacy of our common humanity prevailed. It, we've had a couple of rough years in the world, all right, and there are a lot of troubling signs on the horizon. And uh, as you will see, if you take a look at my book, I'm, I think that the fact that the Palestinians walked away from the peace agreement that Ahud Barak embraced, that, that uh, many, many times in the 1990s, Shimon and Sakrabin and later Ahud Barak, and even Bibi Netanyahu in his previous phase at Y River, you know, we made offers and they were walked away from in various ways. I think this was a tragedy. But on balance, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, look at what's happened since 1989. Yeah, we've had all this terrorist problem. It's terrible. But the prim primary adversaries of the Cold War, Russia and China, have largely been reconciled to the free world. We ended all the ethnic slaughter in the Balkans and gave Europe a chance to be united, democratic, and secure for the first time in history. We expanded NATO and its partnership for peace and now are taking in many other nations. The EU grew and expanded and deepened in its meaning. Uh, Turkey is on track to become part of the European Union and if it does, at the worst, it will become a bulwark for the West against Islamic extremism, and at best, it could become a gateway to a new Middle East and a whole more positive future for people reaching across cultural and religious lines. 